Today's edition of the podcast is brought to you by CoachMe Plus. CoachMe Plus is the leader in athlete management software and a product that I've been lucky enough to be using for a little over a year now. Only rivaled by the impeccable customer service that Kevin and his staff provides, CoachMe Plus's ability to constantly be amoeba-like in their ability to mold and, and matriculate what you're trying to get across and bring together is, is absolutely fantastic. Their constant pursuit of better ways and better methods and, and innovations and progress to their own product is absolutely fantastic. Go over to CoachMePlus.com, check out what they got, guys. It's, uh, it's something that I guarantee you won't be disappointed with. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today, guys, we're going to sit down and talk movement training with the Movement Miyagi himself, Mr. Sean Mishka. And guys, we're going to get right into it. We're going to talk about what in-season looks like for his football guys in the NFL. We're going to talk about what common sport problems are, what they are, and how he identifies them, and some ways that he sees that we can be better at looking at those. We're going to get into what he calls the three B's of movement. Follows a lot of Bernstein's principles, and it's really some awesome stuff in here. We're going to finish out with how he's handling his guys in the offseason and how he builds into the training. It's absolutely killer, guys. Sean is so open and so candid in his sharing. I can't thank him enough. I hope you guys enjoyed the talk as much as I did. Let's get right to it. Sean, thanks for being with us today, my man. Oh, brother, it's a pleasure to be here. Well, listen, Sean. Let's let's get right down to brass tacks. You're you're well known for helping people move better and run faster, and you do a ton of work with guys in the NFL. And since we're now coming up to that one game that might be important that we can't say the name because of trademarks, <laughs> let's talk about how you handle your guys in season, and more importantly, what you're looking for when you're watching them play on Sunday and watching film during the week. Yeah, and I love the question. Because I think too often in physical preparation, you know, uh, wherever you fit within and under that paradigm, whether it's strength and conditioning or physical therapy or athletic training, uh, sports medicine, sports science even for that matter, I think too often we get too far away from the things that they're actually doing. You know, when all is said and done, if we were to go back to that uh, good old training Bible called super training, you know, Sif and Verkoshansky said in there really um, – poignantly and something that I refer back to really frequently is that sport is nothing but a problem-solving activity where movements are used to produce the necessary solutions. So for me, movement is at the heart of everything else. But what I find is that even in our profession, those who have degrees in kinesiology or uh, motor behavior or anything under the sun that fits underneath one of those disciplines we find that they don't actually study athletes when and where it counts, which is in the sport. So for me, Jay, is I went back, I traced that back, I peel back the layers, and I truly try to evaluate where it matters to the player. And that is in the game, on the field, in their environment, when they're performing the tasks in that organic environment. And I think too often here in physical preparation, and and I'm as guilty of it myself, I was so used to looking at Uh, All of our cute little fancy tests that we have that we want to show out there for the world to show the work that we're doing. But when all is said and done, that athlete cares about one thing and one thing only. Did I get better 
on a field on Sunday, at least for my guys. You know, they may think they want to get a bigger squat or a faster 40 or all those types of things, but if they can't actually apply those motor abilities on a Sunday afternoon, it's a wash. I can spit in my hand and give it to them, and it's worth just as much. So for me, Jay, what I do and where I start is their film analysis. And so before a guy even starts with me, like at this time of the year when we're winding down the season and they are ready to get started in March or April, um, I apologize there. I just got my new little agility dog and she likes to to bark at everything. So if (laughs) y'all heard that, I apologize. Um, So hopefully she didn't take me too much off my train of thought there. But when I get a guy, people are usually really floored to hear that I need to watch every single play that that guy has ever performed in an NFL game before I'll ever even take him on. And the reason for that is I want to see how it is that his movement uh, is organized, how he coordinates and controls himself in time and space and in relation to the common sport problems that he faces based on his position. And then I also want to see how his skills have been refined and been acquired over the course of his NFL uh, history. And so for me, then once I take a guy on, I have very nuanced ways of figuring out what types of things he he does and how he solves those problems per Sif and Verkoshansky's um, definition or idea there about our job or our objective revolving around movement. And for me, Jay, I'm not just looking at biomechanics. I'm looking specifically in regards to what we would refer to as the biodynamic structure of that movement, how the behaviors lead into the, the brain processes, which then lead into the motor output or the biomechanics. And it's always this confluence of factors, this integration between those three Bs of movement, if you will. So when I'm watching a player um, get ready for the season, you know, people often see Uh, me go to training camps or they hear my reports or look and read my blog. What I'm doing is I'm watching my player out on a field during individual work, positional work, uh, seven on seven or more open environment of team or scrimmage type environments. And what I'm doing there is trying to see what we did, if it translated, if it was truly a representative learning environment and what we can do to tweak and tune that movement at that 3B level, the behaviors, the brain, and the biomechanics. And really what I mean there is there's a lot of things being missed. You know, I've talked a lot about uh, my idea or my suggestion at the professional level for there to be this existence of a movement coach or a movement skill acquisition specialist. And really what I find there is that The players are not getting informed in regards to how they're moving, why they might be moving that way, and what we could potentially do with means and methods in order to improve it and more closely get towards optimization of that movement. And the players, um, you know, kind of get stuck in Never Never Land there in the middle. You know, they have their strength and conditioning coaches who are doing a great job taking care of their physical preparatory means. Then they have their position coaches over on the other side that are talking about X's and O's and maybe running them through some positional drills. But no one is actually truly existing in the middle, being a conduit to that movement, and that's what I truly aim to do for the players. So I go through their film with a fine-tooth comb both beforehand as well as then while the season unfolds, 
I see my guys, you know, my guys that are are here in Minnesota, and, and I'm not going to mention the other side of that name, again, because of the trademark, um, but I have my Minnesota guys here, um, and we'll see each other twice a week, maybe three times a week, depending on who the player is. I have my remote guys from teams across the league that I handle the same type of thing where I give them means and methods based on what I was seeing unfold on Sundays for them. And so I'll watch the film again with a fine tooth comb. I'll go through it from point A to point Z, uh, try to determine, uh, you know, their sensory and perceptual and behavioral uh, nuances of that movement, what they're looking at, when they're looking at it, how they're perceiving what's in their environment. And I'm trying to then connect that to what they're thinking, what types of decisions they're making. And then finally, how it is that the motor output is unfolding from that. And so from there, we can look at any different number of ways of addressing any three of those levels while the guy is in season and start to tweak and tune their movement. Maybe it's biomechanical, maybe it's the decisions they're making, or maybe it's what they're seeing, when they're seeing it, and uh, what types of things they're perceiving uh, when they do so. So we're constantly trying to connect that perception and action and give them a wider, more diverse um, toolbox, a toolbox that is a really, really rather dexterous, if you will. You know, Bernstein talked way back in the 60s in regards to dexterity of movement and having multiple solutions to really account for this wide, complex problem that is the National Football League. All right. There, <laughs> that's some heavy stuff. And I got two questions that I want to build off of that, and then we can move on to the next thing that we talked about before. Discuss common sports problems. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, for me, when I dissect the problems that happen in sport for the player, you know, I have to look at, obviously, positional demands first and foremost. But what we find is that when we see the positional demands, many times coaches just design these cute little drills that really end up, uh, you know, where they run them through in an assembly line type fashion, thinking that the drill is representative of what happens in the actual sport. So when I'm actually dissecting those problems, I have to look at things both tactically, based on where that guy is playing, what he's being asked to do, technically being like the things that then emerge or the problem that then emerges, and then maybe again, how that athlete is solving that problem in respect to those tactical and technical demands. And those common sport movement problems then really truly differ, and I know this is not the answer that people wanna hear, but it really truly differs depending on the player. Because how the player views that respective problem, again, is another complex system. So the emergent movement solution is dependent on the player's capacities and their what we would refer to in dynamical system theory as their affordances for action. So every player interprets problems differently. We start, you know, I heard Keith Davids on a podcast about a year or so ago, Keith Davids, who was of, of dynamical systems and ecological psychology um, kind of fame and glory talk about affordances for action as being invitations for movement solutions, invitations for actions. And that means how when you see the same problem that I see, I have a different common solution than what you do. But what we find is that we can never separate the solution from the problem. And so what I do is I dissect those problems that that player specifically is seeing based on where he plays, 
how he interprets the problem and what we might do differently in order to get him to solve that problem in a more efficacious type of fashion. And that to me, Jay, is really what movement mastery is about. And that also then becomes what we should be aiming to create wherever we exist across this sport movement specialty. We should be trying to create athletes who are problem solvers, who are adaptable, and can then apply a very functional solution. And I hate to use that word, but it really truly fits in this regards. A functional solution to a highly variable movement problem. And so position to position, I just kind of break that down. I peel back the layers and try to determine what types of things that that player often finds themselves doing. And of course, we can make then generalizations. But what I would say to coaches out there when you're doing this is because we can't, you guys probably don't have nearly as much um, ability or flexibility and freedom as I do with my players when I'm working one-on-one or one-on-two type of situation where I can really make the representative learning environment be representative of that player's tendencies and nuances. So what I would suggest to coaches out there to make this more applicable, to be that bridge, if you will, is look at it position by position. So if all of a sudden you have all skill players, and I see this all the time when I go to NFL uh, camps or practices or even agility days, what they do is they lump all skill players in the same group. And it's like they are expected and required to perform in much different fashions. Guys are at different distances. They're looking at different things at different times. The inter-individual and intra-individual variability is highly different. So if at a bare level and a bare minimum, we as a profession in an industry can come together and make it more positional specific at bare minimum, that's what I would be suggesting as more of a call to action for coaches of any sport. And of course, I'm existing in the the football world, but um, it really applies to any sport. No, that's fantastic. And super points um, and and some things that people probably going to want to go back and listen to again, because that that breaks down a lot of the same things that we look at here and how we handle these kids. I, I absolutely love it. The other thing that I'd like you to talk a little bit more about is the three B's. Yeah. And now let's, if you could, and I know that conversation, this might be difficult, but if there's a way you could talk about how you evaluate the three and what you're looking for in the three, Mm -hmm. I think that could be extremely enlightening. Yeah, absolutely. Because Jay, for me, everything really, um, when we see the player or the athlete exist in the environment, and of course, you can probably tell through a reflection of some of my answers prior to this point, is I study a lot from a dynamical systems, ecological psychology, or then constraints-led approach to coaching from that. And so what I do, first and foremost, is really try to think about the athlete existing in the middle or the confluence of the environment the task, and then the organism, who that athlete is in respect to the environment. Hopefully all of that has probably made some sense prior to this point. But when we think about the human movement system and how it organizes and coordinates and controls and executes a motor response to the problem that is existing from that environment task and then who they are in their physical constraints as an athlete, we see that the human movement system is always going to be this integration between those three B's that we already brought up and that you just brought up in this question. 
And again, if I'm, I, I want to define this very clearly, if I can, for the listeners out there. When I talk about the behavioral level, first and foremost, I'm talking about how the athlete directs their attention. And that's at a sensory and perceptual level. When I, when I analyze the best movers in my game, in the National Football League, it's not that they sense things differently. It's that they perceive things differently. And what I mean by that, Jay, is this, is we all have access, unless we have some sort of neurological disorder, we all have access to relatively the same database of sensory information. If you're performing in a, in a sport movement problem and I'm performing in a sport movement problem, and so is Adrian Peterson, we all have the same access as long as we're in the same spot at the same time. But the difference between Adrian Peterson and Sean Mishka and Jay is that Adrian Peterson perceives things differently based on that sensory data that came in. So he knows and understands where he should be looking, when he should be looking there, and then what it means to his movement. So his sensory and perceptual data that's coming in is much more finely attuned based on that which what he must do. So that first B, the behavioral level, is really about sensory and perceptual control. What is one looking at? When are they looking at it? What does it mean for them? What kind of kinesthetic data is coming in? Maybe proprioceptive data, haptic and touch in the environment that will give them affordances and ideas and understanding. There's some other things at a sensory and perceptual level that comes up there. If we're talking about the senses, there's five of them, right? So things that they might be hearing beyond what they're seeing. Um, not so much the smelling necessarily, but what they're touching and how that what it all means, what that sensory data really truly means to what they can do as a motor response. So all of a sudden, if we just start to use an ever-changing environment of sport, you probably have heard me talk before about a repetition without repetition type of practice structure. I believe, again, kind of a nugget for coaches or a call to action of coaches. If you were to just start to incorporate more of this repetition without repetition type of idea where the environment changes from rep to rep for every single athlete, all of a sudden they become a problem solver and it all stems from this sensory and perceptual data because the data changes and it gets them very attuned to it. So first and foremost, it all starts at that perception side, that perceptual level. Where are they directing their attention and how? Second B becomes the brain. When that information comes in, what types of intention now will emerge from where their attention flowed? So the intention now, what do they have to do? Why do they have to do it? And how can they do it is that next step. And of course, depending on the dynamic nature of this sport problem, that time period could be very, very short. So we want to make this decision-making process very clear, very concise, and very precise. And so we want to give them as many opportunities to find and adjust for their movement solution. So I just talked about that repetition without repetition type of structure where the athlete gets to solve problems. That's why when coaches usually watch my sessions, they may watch an NFL All-Pro training, and what they see is a lot of mistakes happening. And what we're seeing is that that athlete is just basically trying out solutions. Again, I hate to keep name dropping Nikolai Bernstein, but God rest his soul, I got to a little bit because he has influenced much of what I do in my practice because of this. Is basically what he showed us is it's not getting a more optimal or perfect movement solution that we want on the back end, 
of that motor output or biomechanical output happens because of these first two Bs. Again, we already talked about the behaviors, but the brain here now, where an athlete gets to test out solutions. Bernstein showed us that it's not repetition by rote, but it's repetition without repetition, where the athlete gets to constantly adjust their solutions to that problem. And I think therein lies the key. That's why these cone drills in the performance of them, what we would see in like most change of direction oriented activities, isn't truly agility. The athlete isn't problem solving. They're not testing out their theories. They're not trying new strategies and solutions. And this in lies, this rub rise in the middle with this brain side of things. Their cognitive decision making. Your agility workouts have to involve decision making. And then finally, we get to the last B, which is the B that most people start and look at to begin with, and that's the biomechanics. And people think when I refer to myself as a movement coach or a sport movement specialist, they think my guys are just going to display the most technical model of biomechanics. And sometimes that's true. But most times what we find is a very authentic movement solution, one that's highly variable depending on the problem. And it all started and stemmed from the brain and then the behavioral level on that cycle of this three Bs. So that biomechanical side now, now I can ask myself certain questions in, regard, in regards to force output, kinetics and kinematics. So now we get to that sexy stuff that most kinesiology people want to try and gravitate to, where we find like what the technical execution truly is, what types of positions they're putting themselves into, what types of patterns they're executing through, and what types of power development and force time characteristics and all those cute things that we all want to look at, but without the, behavior, the, without the behaviors in the brain, we never truly get to the most optimal biomechanics. And I think if the reason why I talk so much about these three Bs is because people neglect those first two Bs and then they expect these perfect biomechanics of that last B to emerge on a football field or on a basketball court or wherever it might be, and it never happens. The way that the athlete looked in practice isn't the way that it, they perform in the match or game or uh, track or wherever it might be. And I think the neglect of those first two Bs is why. I couldn't agree anymore with what you just said. And I think that that's freaking awesome. <laughs> Not just because I'm like, yeah. You know, like, <laughs> like we're talking the same language, but the one thing that we've been really looking into and Jeff Moyer is a good friend of mine and yeah, really involved yes. with everything that we do here that he does is a lot of the vision work. And mm -hmm. I really think that that stuff is like, like we teach a lot of techniques and we work practicing with how we cut and how we change direction but no one worries about the two bumps in the front of their face that actually have to identify what the problem is. 100%. And I think that that is like so the next level for what we're all trying to do. Uh, and I couldn't agree more with that. So I'll kind of rub your back on that one because <laughs> and Jeff and I had have, have had uh, numerous conversations about this as well. And, and what we, again, what we find, if the sensory data is... Uh, blurred for whatever reason, let's just call it blurred. You know, if it's, if they don't have attunement to that sensory information, 
the perception and the decision making and then the biomechanics can never can never emerge. They just can't. And we find, as I'm sure you guys do, uh, as I know Jeff does, is that many athletes have um, problems in that visual system and then the way that they process the information coming in from it. Oh, no doubt. And it's it's so funny. You see it all the time in college basketball. It's just a pressure walk. It's like mm-hmm. you get the ball and somebody comes at you and then you just see the uh uh with your feet and then it's like other way. Yeah. And it's, yeah. Oh, it's awesome. I, I love that you brought that up. I thought there were some absolute masterpieces in that. That was, that was great. Thank you. Now, let's talk about what's happening now for the guys that you have coming back. So what's an off-season like up there in, in MSP working at your facility with these guys? Yeah, so as soon as the season ends, and of course for any one of my guys, uh, that differs depending on the time of the year and the season. Uh, so sometimes I'm blessed to have guys that go all the way to the big game that we can't mention, but sometimes uh, it ends early. And uh, like so for my Minnesota guys, um, it did end early, and it ended much earlier than, than they would have anticipated or anyone would have anticipated after a 5-0 and start. Um, there she goes again. <laughs> uh, I love it, man. I love she, it. She's just trying to protect, I, I promise. <laughs> I love it. Um, so what we find is that uh, depending on when that season ends for that respective individual and how much they actually played and how much stress – their bodies were placed under because it is a ridiculous cup that gets filled by stress. Mm-hmm. You know, in the National Football League, um, you know, so we have I have running backs who by you know week ten they have a hard time walking on Wednesday or Thursday yet without holding a wall as they walk. You know, then I have other guys who are special teamers who might have you know eight plays a game. So it really depends, but at a very bare minimum. I make every single one of my guys take about four weeks off at minimum to where they don't do anything. They're traveling. They're forgetting about football Um, unless they came off of IR or something of that fashion or they were on IR to end the season. Then we might be addressing their training right now. So right now, any of the guys that I have, you know, in mid-January with at least those Minnesota guys um, are only IR guys. Uh, so they're still here. We're getting a jump start on 2017. But my guys who played and played a lot of snaps are staying away from Sean because they don't want to hear anything more that I have to say right now. So we'll make them miss me just a little bit. You know, I'm playing hard to get right now and, and rightfully so. So, you know, distance makes a heart grow fonder. So I'm just using some relationship and dating rules here with my players. So we kind of have this separation. Um, I don't make them think about all the little details, all the little nuances that make them masters of their craft for at least four to six weeks. And sometimes people find that odd that I give them that much time off, especially with how detail oriented we really are the rest of the year. But because I know how detail oriented I want to be the rest of the year and how we're going to have to pay close attention to those details as soon as it all begins again. I kind of use this as that separation type of point. And so it really depends on how long I give guys off. If it's an eight, nine, 10 year veteran, I'm usually allowing it, the ball to be in their court in regards to when they start back up. 
So I'll usually have those eight, nine, 10 year veteran type of guys, maybe even plus more than that. Um, usually coming back to me anywhere between that four and six week period, you know, they'll see the Super Bowl and that, oops, I threw that in there. They'll see that big game and then, then they're gonna, they're probably going to get a little anxious and they're going to get a little Kevin fever and they're going to uh, start hitting me up at that point. Um, in the meantime, basically what I do is I come up with reports from the season. So they will have seen what it is that we did in 2016. And so that is my role as their performance advisor to tell them, this is what I saw. Here's where your strengths were. Here's the games that it was displayed. But in contrast, here are the weaknesses. And here's where we're going to have to go heading into next year. And the things that we're going to have to do and why I'm excited about where that player is in the progress or timescale of the mastery of their craft. So I send out those reports. They're usually eight, nine, 10 pages long, and it breaks down how they performed in every single game, what we still saw as issues, what we still saw as compensations and dysfunctions, and what we're about to do in 2017. So they can start wrapping their heads around what it is that we're gonna ask them to do as soon as they get back to me in February or March. And that's usually about when most guys end up coming back. Again, unless it's a guy who's been on IR, and then I'm seeing them right now. That's awesome. And, I, you know, piggybacking off our talk before, I, I think that the, just the fact that you're giving these cats the time to be like humans yeah. is like, oh, it's the best medicine. Well, and, and these guys get so overstimulated, as you well know. I mean, their cup, like I said, is full. They're on hyperdrive the whole rest of the season. They're being pulled in so many different directions. And you know as well as I do the role that that has on the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And they, they don't want to do any work. I mean, you should see the look on these guys' face after their last game, no matter when it is. Now, granted, they may be disappointed because it was week 17 and they wanted to go to the postseason. Don't get me wrong, so don't take that the wrong way. But the look on their face, like, oh, my goodness, like, I don't have to play in another football game for a while. And maybe even more so, like, I don't got to see Sean for a while. So now, now to a certain degree, you know, like I, I, I want to give them that time and space again to be human beings, just to get refreshed and to get themselves back to neutral so we can do what it is that they want to do heading forward and become who it is that God made them to be and, and be able to fulfill their plans and purposes. No, oh, man, that's that's absolutely big time. Awesome stuff. Sean, let, let's leave it on this. Where can people find out more about you? Read what you're writing, social media, all that jazz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, on Twitter, you can find me at Movement Miyagi. Uh, so I know most people kind of know that, and that was just kind of a play on words over regards to what uh, some of the things that I do with my guys and how we do it. So uh, Twitter, I can be found at Movement Miyagi. Um, I also have uh, OptimizeMovement.com. It's my business or my brand is called Movement Mastery, and that's a content-driven site. I have both a free portion as well as then a paid portion. Uh, even the free portion, I give out quite a bit of information and send out a few videos. You can also find those same videos on my YouTube channel, which someone can just find by typing in Sean Mishka. Um, and the last name is spelled M-Y-S-Z-K-A. So there's a lot of free videos on there talking about a lot of movement-oriented, uh, movement mastery and movement skill acquisition topics. And then finally, I have my blog, uh, which is called Football Beyond the Stats, dot wordpress.com so it's the world's longest url there uh football beyond the stats dot wordpress.com and there i just break down and analyze 
usually one play per week. I have a movement play of the week that happened in the NFL. And then I also talk about some of the things that I do with my players. And I break down other movers across the league. You know, I have a mover of the year and all movement teams. So you can kind of see or the reader can kind of see what it is that I'm looking at. And we can hopefully all learn from one another uh, to maybe take this lens and turn it more uh, to what Siffenberg Oshansky said so long ago in regards to movement and movement being that problem-solving activity. Yeah, man. Well, listen, all those are going to be linked below, too. Tap away at those. Make sure you guys are, are reading through all that stuff because it's, uh, there's some face-melting stuff in there, man. It's, it's absolutely killer content. Sean, I can't thank you enough, man. This, this is killer, bro. And uh, We're going to get this up right away. People are going to love it. I can't thank you enough for your time. Well, my man, I appreciate you and what you're doing, and I appreciate you having me on, and obviously everything that you guys are doing with the conference as well as all the content that you put out. I listen to it weekly, and so it's been a pleasure and an honor being on with you as well. Well, I appreciate the kind words, my man. We will be in touch real soon, all right, my friend? Sounds good, brother. Stay blessed. Yeah, man. Thank you. You the same. You got it. And a huge thanks again to the Movement Miyagi himself, Mr. Sean Mishka, for being with us today. Guys, just freaking killer information. A guy who's open, honest, candid with his sharing, and just putting it all out there. I can't thank him enough. You can obviously see where the Bernstein, Vorkoshansky uh, influence is with what he's doing with his players. Absolutely fantastic stuff. And as always, guys, if you enjoyed the talk, please share it through the social media outlet of your choice. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever it may be. If you haven't subscribed yet on iTunes or Podomatic or YouTube, Make sure you click that subscribe button so you guys can stay up to date with everything. Make sure you sign up for the newsletter so you can stay up to date with the 2017 seminar. Seats are on sale now, guys, and that website is live. I'm ready to roll, so make sure you get your seat before they're gone. And as always, can't thank you guys enough for what you do for us here at Central Virginia Sport Performance. We will be back next week with another awesome guest. We will see you then.